This is a wonderful psalm. So we're, we're doing a series in the psalms. This is number four. Uh, I guess one of the privileges of going through the psalms is you get to pick your favorites. But uh, early on when I started uh, working in full-time ministry, this, I heard a sermon on this psalm, and mine's not going to be as good as that one. But it was re- really transforming to me. Uh, and it communicated, this psalm communicates such wonderful truths about God's word how precious and powerful God's Word is. And so that's what we're looking at today. So question is for you, how precious is God's Word for you? How precious is it to you? What difference does God's Word make in your life? And is it precious to you? How precious is it? We, 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 you might know these things already. Perhaps you, you know Bible's important. You've heard this before. But, you know, it's like um, when you get to that collection of silver. I remember my mum used to have a silver collection, but in every few years she'd polish it up and you forget how pretty it was, you know, how beautiful it was. We need to polish these things up often. We need to be reminded of how precious God's Word is again and again. And a reason for that is because God's Word is constantly challenged. In fact, ever since the day Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God's Word has been under attack. Remember Satan said, did God really say, Don't, you mustn't eat any fruit from the garden? So the, the God's word has constantly been challenged and twisted in lots of different ways. And um, I've got here a number of different ways. One attack on God's word is that it's not trustworthy. That you might have heard people say, the Bible's changed. It, it's not what they originally wrote. It's not historically reliable, or it's not consistent with science. Uh, we've found scientific discoveries today, and how does the Bible, uh, it does, it's not consistent with these. Now, these aren't true challenges, but they're challenges that we need to address. That's one challenge. Another one is that it's not relevant. How can a book that's written, been written two plus thousand years ago, this particular psalm, 3,000 years ago, how can that be relevant to us? They lived in a different time. How can Bronze Age people write a message that's relevant to us today? It doesn't speak to our cultural issues. Another one is that it's not authoritative, that the culture is the boss. And so we see this in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Today, one of the big ways that Christianity diverges from the culture is the whole issue of sexuality. And so often what people are trying to do, even within parts of the church, is to say, well, actually... The Bible is, you know, it's not relevant on these parts. We, it's not culturally relevant or it, it's not authoritative. The culture is the boss. Listen to this quote from Rob Bell, who uh, is a preacher, uh, was a Christian preacher, but went more and more into doubting God's word. And this is, he's talking about the church's stance on sexuality. And he says, I think culture is already there. That's in tolerating certain things. And the church will continue to be more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. So here's Rob Bell, who's a, a preacher, supposedly a Christian preacher, saying that the Bible is irrelevant. That's a huge attack on God's word. Another one is that it's not clear. People will say, well, you can read that into God's word, but I read something totally different. So there's a challenge about God's word that it's not actually clear. Another one is that it's culturally regressive, that it's culturally narrow. Uh, Another one is it's not sufficient. 
So you see this in churches that we think the Bible's not enough. We need more methods. We need more creative methods. Or we need different ways to bring the gospel to people um, apart from the word. Or we need more signs and wonders. Or we need more modern psychology. Or we need more programs. The Bible's not sufficient. That's another challenge. I think one is, for us, is just a practical challenge of being in the information age that the Bible is just not entertaining enough for us compared to a lot of other things. So what are you tempted to get up and get into or what information are you more tempted to access first thing in the morning or last thing at night? Often it's not God's word, it's something more entertaining like maybe Facebook or TV or emails but it's not entertaining and so we don't actually access it. What a shame that is. We'll talk more about that But we need to be solid on our doctrine of Scripture. So how do you answer all those challenges? Have you had those challenges? And how do you answer those challenges? We need to be solid on our doctrine of Scripture. Otherwise, it's pretty easy to see what the danger is. If you're not solid on your view of Scripture, what can happen? Well, the Bible says that the church and our faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, i.e. God's Word. Now, if... uh, That's true. If our faith is built on the foundation of God's word and that foundation is undermined, what happens to our faith? Of course, it comes crashing down. And so we need to have a strong foundation of our view of God's word. So how solid is your confidence in the Bible? How solid is your foundation, uh, your confidence in your foundation? This is why Psalm 19 is so wonderful. It actually speaks to all of those challenges I listed before. It speaks to all of them. And John MacArthur says of these verses in this psalm, he says, they're perhaps the most uh, powerful, clear, strongest statement of the sufficiency of Scripture in the whole Bible. Maybe apart from um, Psalm 119, but it would take us a long time to preach through Psalm 119. So here we have some very powerful statements on the sufficiency of Scripture. All right, so two points for our outline today, and they are these. First one, God speaks in creation, verses 1 to 6. And second, God speaks in his word. God is speaking. And we're going to look at these two different ways. God speaks. So let's look at this first one briefly. God speaks in creation. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say something like this. If God wrote his name in the stars or wrote something in the stars, then maybe I'd believe him. Have you ever heard that? It's a pretty common thing for people to say. Well, what does this psalm tell us? The psalm tells us that this is exactly what God has done. He's exactly done that very thing. He's written evidence of himself all over the place. So have a look at verses 1 to 4. We'll read these out. The heavens declare... The glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. What what do these verses tell us? They tell us that our universe is constantly speaking about our creator. Notice the, the, the descriptions there. The heavens, they declare or they proclaim or they pour forth. 
So God's creation yells out evidence of the creator. It yells out about God. What are they telling? Verse 1, they declare his glory, the glory and the majesty of this God. And they show that it's his handiwork. You can see that in verse 1. When do they tell this message? All of the time. Look what it says in verse 2. Day after day, night after night, constantly, God is speaking through his creation as we sung about before in that kid's song. Where is this message broadcast? Have a look at verse 4. Everywhere, the ends of the earth, there's no place where this message isn't heard. I remember um, being at a, a conference center in the US once and they had on, on all the time this college football station, uh, college American football, University Gridiron, and it was on constantly and it struck me, they never, there's, you can never stop. They literally don't ever stop talking about college football. There's always a game coming up. There's always a post-match analysis, uh, there's news, there's trades, there's results. It just doesn't stop. And actually, God is constantly broadcasting this message about himself. He has an endless amount to say about himself. So is there evidence for God? It's everywhere. It's all around us. And so we'll just put up here Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. It's what it tells us. What may be known about God is plain to people because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that all people are without excuse. So is it obvious that God exists? According to the Bible, it's really obvious to all of us that he exists, but we decide, as it says in Romans, not to retain that knowledge. We, 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 we throw it away. So the Bible, according to the Bible, it's really obvious that God exists. And if you've ever seen these Planet Earth series, and you sit there and, and you find things about the world, you find out things about the world that we never knew because they're able now to explore places and do filming where they never were before, and you see things about this planet that just astonish us all the time. Just on this one planet, there's so much wonder in animals and places to see. And the same is true in space, in the sky. And you can see there in verse 1, what is it that declare God's, declares God's glory? It's the heavens, the sky, it's the space and the sky. And David actually just uses a very simple illustration. What's the, the one illustration he picks up on? Verses 4 to six, it's the sun. He just talks about the sun. He's amazed by the sun. And we might think, well, that's not all that exciting. But think about this. Imagine if you lived in a world where there wasn't a sun and all the light you had was kind of from uh, flame or artificial light or bulbs or other things, you know, lamps on stands. Maybe you live underground or in a different world. And maybe you saw a world with a sun for the first time. Now, would you believe if someone told you about this floating ball of fire that just zoomed across the sky and kept the earth warm and nothing held it up? That would be, you wouldn't believe it, would you? It would be absolutely astonishing to behold something like that for the first time. How does it stay up there? It keeps the earth warm just right. 
If it was further away, it'd be too cold. If it was much closer, it'd be too hot. The light makes everything live on the planet. It's just an incredible thing. And there's a moon as well. Now, we're used to it, but that doesn't make it less remarkable. We understand that there's this thing called gravity. We understand there's this thing called nuclear fusion, which makes the sun burn. But that doesn't make it less remarkable. The fact that we can explain how some of those things work. The sun is an incredible witness to God's glory. John Calvin says this, he said, David speaks in a homely style so that he might reprove or correct the world, the whole world of ingratitude, if in beholding the sun they are not taught the fear and the knowledge of God. We should be amazed by the sun as an evidence of God's creation. So God speaks in creation, but not in a way that we can know him personally. He speaks, as it says in Romans 1 there, we can know about his power, his eternal power and his divine nature, but we can't know him personally. And so there is a more wonderful way that God speaks, and we see it in verses 7 to 11. And this is our second point here. God speaks through his word. God speaks through his word. God is speaking every day through his word. Recently, uh, we're coming, my family was coming back from London, and we went through Oxford, took a detour, and we didn't have much time, and so I did a, we, we went to a, it was a li- little mini C.S. Lewis tour, basically. We went to the church that he went to and sat in the pew that he sat in. And, you know, it was a good little connection with C.S. Lewis. I felt like maybe I knew him a little bit better. But it struck me as I was thinking about it, none of these things help me know C.S. Lewis. It's by reading his stuff, reading his books, that I'm going to know C.S. Lewis. And actually, it's the same with God. You're going to know him by reading his word, but it's different with God because he's not dead like C.S. Lewis. He's very much alive and his spirit speaks through the word. And so it's powerful and present in the way it speaks today. So God speaks in his word. Now have a look at verses 7 to 11. These are wonderful verses. Now see, as we read these, you'll find six titles Six characteristics and six effects of God's word. So see if you can pick these up. Six titles, six characteristics, six effects. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So we've got six titles, and more than six characteristics, actually, and effects of God's word. Look at the titles of God's word there. It's described as God's law, his statutes, verse 7, his precepts, commands, fear, and decrees. So that's the titles given to God's word. What does that say? God's the sovereign of the universe. He's the king. He's the judge. The universe belongs to him, and this is the king's edict. This is the king's decree to the world. Now, it doesn't matter 
whether people believe in him or not regarding whether the word is binding to them. It matters whether they believe in him or not, but for the purposes of whether the word applies to them, yes, it does. Whether people follow God or not, God's word is authoritative over their life. So people can say, I don't follow God, but it doesn't mean that the word is not authoritative in their life. God is the king of this universe. This is his word. Now, have a look at the characteristics. Wouldn't it be great to meditate on these and really unpack them? We can't do that anywhere near fully, but we're going to unpack some of them a little bit. But look at the characteristics. How is God's word described? What are some of the descriptions used? It's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's pure. And it's firm. And you can see some others there. It endures forever. It's altogether righteous. And there's two more in verse 10. It's more precious than gold. And it's more sweeter than honey. Wonderful descriptions of God's word. And we see six effects. What does the word do in a person's life? Have a think about these. It refreshes or revives the soul. It makes the simple person wise. It brings joy to the heart. It brings light to the eyes. It warns God's servant. And it brings great reward if we keep it. Isn't that amazing? That's the descriptions of God's word. So let's take time to unpack a few of these. Look at the first one. God's word is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, what does it mean that something's perfect? It means it's complete, it's whole, nothing's lacking in it. It covers every aspect. There's nothing missing. So God's word, think about this, it says everything God wants it to say, and it contains everything we need to hear. It's not devoid of anything. So it it contains everything God wants to say and everything we need to hear. Often we say, I wonder if you ever think this, I wish I knew God's will for my life. You ever think that or say that? It's a common thing for us to want. Well, God's sovereign will, the will he's decreed about whatever's going to happen, you will never know that. Only he knows that. That's one of those secret things that belong to him. But his revealed will, the will that he's revealed, is contained in the word. Everything you need to know is in here. This is his will for your life. It's in the word. Now, even when we kind of reading and we we start reading through the Bible and we get bogged down in Leviticus, it's perfect. It's there for a reason. Okay, now some some of the parts of the Bible might be harder to understand, or more tricky to wade through, or we might know what, not know what they mean. But there's a perfect function of that part of Scripture. And it speaks to every aspect of life. There's not a part of life that God's Word doesn't speak to. It speaks to your relationships. It speaks to your work. It speaks to finances. It speaks to sex. It speaks to parenting. It speaks to marriage. It speaks to how to respond with family. It speaks to every area of life. And you know, God's not surprised by the cultural changes in the world. He knows everything that's going to happen, and he made all cultures. God's not surprised by the shifts that happen in culture. The word covers them. God speaks to them. He knew what cultural challenges we would face in the year 2017. God's word addresses them all. So think about this. 
the more you, you meditate on God's word, study it, the more you digest it and take it in, the more equipped you'll be to face the challenges of today. The more in touch you are going to be. The more you get into the word, it doesn't make you a strange, detached person in culture. The more you get into God's word, the more in touch you are going to be. Now, Jesus always handled the word this way. It was relevant to every situation. What did Jesus say when he was tempted three times in the desert by Satan? What did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written. He quotes scripture. And then when he's challenged by other people, he says, have you not read this or that? Have you not read that God created them male and female? Jesus always went back to scripture. He knew the word and he handled the word well. So the Bible is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the scriptures make us thoroughly equipped. But we need to study it, don't we? It's like a sword. And if you're not handling the sword, you can have a wonderful effective sword a soldier could have a wonderful sword but if they're not trained in it then they're not going to handle it well so we need to use it and be trained in it and think about this it's perfect so perfect that it does what verse 7 it revives the soul it revives the soul that means it converts or it turns or it renovates or it transforms the whole soul the soul is the person the whole person So think about what it's saying. The Bible is so perfect that it will completely change the whole person. It will give life to the whole person. It makes us new people. I remember uh, when I started full-time ministry and I I was thinking about this sermon that I'd heard on Psalm 19. And uh, I was walking into a residential university dorm and I met a guy called Robbie and um, Robbie was sort of from an Anglican background, but he was really confused in what he believed. He was thinking about New Age stuff. He'd been reading all kinds of stuff. And he was very confused. And with these kind of truths in mind about the sufficiency of Scripture, I said to him, Robbie, I had a book of John, you know, a little book of John. I said, Robbie, you just need to read the Bible. And I gave him this book of John, and I said, it's got 21 chapters, five minutes a day, One chapter a day, you'll be through it in three weeks. That's one book of the Bible. And so I gave it to Robbie, and uh, I didn't see Robbie over the break. must have been about six weeks till I saw him again. And I asked him, you know, when I saw him again, not knowing what to expect, I said, well, how are you doing, Robbie? Did you read the Bible, and what, what did you think about the book of John? Robbie had, over the break, completely changed. He was a Christian, and he was excited about the word, And he was amazed at how much God had changed him through reading the book of John. The Bible is sufficient to completely change a person. It powerfully changed Robbie's life. I didn't really do anything except give him a book of the Bible and tell him to read it. That's all I did. His life was completely changed. That's how powerful God's word is. What else are we told about it? We can't, as I said, unpack all of these. Just going to unpack a couple. Look what it says next in verse 7. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. It's like solid ground that we walk on. It's like being surrounded by mire and bog, but there's a a firm path we can walk, which is God's word. So the Bible is 
trustworthy. It's historically and scientifically trustworthy. That doesn't mean it's a scientific textbook. It's not written to understand how the universe functions primarily, but everything we find in the Bible is correct. I'm yet to encounter a point at which there's a real tension between my scientific understanding and the truth of God's word. But if there is a tension, I'm still going to trust God's word because I know it's trustworthy. I know it's trustworthy because God wrote it. If God designed the universe, he's going to understand how it works. It's also historically reliable. I wonder if you've ever seen the Rylands Fragments. Uh, it's a piece of paper in the Rylands Museum. It's very small, and I know I've probably talked about this piece of paper before. Uh, it's probably my favorite piece of paper in the world. And um, this is the oldest fragment of the New Testament you'll find pretty much anywhere in the world. I think people think that there's a fragment of Mark now that's older. But this is part of John chapter 18. And it's got two sides. And so it, it, it tells of John, some verses in John chapter 18. That's from as early as about 120 AD. Now, John wrote his books quite late. So we're only talking about one generation after the disciple John lived, that we have this parchment, this piece of paper written with John chapter 18 on it. What does that tell us? We've got thousands, actually, of pieces of manuscript like this for the, the Bible, the New Testament. I was down in London Library not long ago, and they've got the Codex Sinaiticus, which is from about three or 400 AD, and it's got the whole Bible. Amazing. So the Bible hasn't changed. We've got an abundance of evidence that the Bible hasn't changed. If someone tells you the Bible's changed, you can tell them very confidently, especially in Manchester, go to the Rylands Library and have a look at the P52 Rylands Fragment and then tell me if you think the Bible's changed. But there's an abundance of evidence that it's reliable. It's both authentic and its content is reliable. It's like a map that won't lead you astray. So trustworthy, what's the effect? What does it say? It makes wise the simple. That's good news for someone like me. It makes wise the simple. It makes the simple person wise. It gives us such a clarity that even unschooled ordinary men like Peter and John amazed the Jewish leaders because they'd been with Jesus and they had a confidence and a clarity and a truth about them that couldn't be undermined. And it says in Psalm 119, 99 to 100, it says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Think about the boy Jesus in the temple. He, was, he astonished the Jewish leaders with his wisdom at 12 years old. Why? Because he knew and handled God's word. This is encouraging for us. God's word, next one, is radiant. It gives light to the eyes. The commands of the Lord, verse 8, are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now think about this. We talked about the sun, but God's word gives us a light of a different kind. It sheds light on the, wor on the world of the face of Christ. We'll have a look at these verses in 2 Corinthians 4. And it says this, just one verse, verse 6. It's for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The God who created the heavens, and made the sun, that God who spoke light into existence, made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So what does God's word reveal? It reveals Jesus to us personally. It helps us to know personally the Savior. So the light of God shines through his word and reveals to us this Savior. Crucified and risen, it teaches us about God's salvation. And we can know him personally. Scripture reveals God's mercy, his forgiveness. Think about the Reformation that happened 500 years ago this year. What was the massive change? After all the sort of uh, tradition that buried the gospel, they just went back to the word, these people, and rediscovered the glorious good news of God's salvation in the Bible. It was just a rediscovery, the Reformation, of what the Bible says, the gospel. So we're born again through the word of God, says that in the Bible. In the negative sense, without God's word, we're in the dark. We're completely in the dark. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what are we thinking when we're not reading God's word? We're in the dark. If you try to navigate life without light, what happens? You end up shipwrecked. It's like a ship out at sea without a lighthouse. You'll end up shipwrecked. It's like driving with no lights on. You're going to have a crash. So we need God's word. It gives light and it revives us and it it reveals God's face to us. Another effect, one more effect. Have a look at verse 8. It gives joy to the heart. And we all want joy, don't we? We all long to be joyful. Where do we often go? We often go, as I said, to entertainment for joy, but joy and entertainment are two very different things. So where do you go for joy? Where do you go for joy? God's Word tells us where to go. We go to His Word. As an example here, I'll give of of John Bunyan, who uh, lived in the 1600s in Bedford. And John Bunyan, uh, at the time, was a time in England to be a preacher if you weren't an Anglican. That was the law at the time. And John Bunyan wasn't an Anglican, but he preached people to hear it. Am I still on? Sorry, I think I pressed a mute button accidentally. Now, John Bunyan was in prison for 12 years. He was wrenched away from his... There I am, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I went to John Bunyan's grave there in uh, London. It's in this wonderful little cemetery in London. You can go see it. And so John Bunyan, he was in prison for 12 years in Bedford, wrenched away from his wife and four children. One of his children was blind. His wife miscarried while he went into prison. And he said that these, these kind of events, he said he felt sometimes like they might break his heart to pieces. And yet in prison, where did he find joy? Listen to what he says. I've never in all my life seen so great an inlet into the word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place and state to shine upon me. Sometimes when I've been in the savour of them, I've been able to laugh at destruction and to fear neither horse nor rider. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of sins in my place and of being with Jesus in another world. Bunyan found joy in the scriptures more and more as he dug into it, even in prison. Why? 
because the scriptures reveal to us the good news of a savior. Look at verse 14. What kind of God is God to us? He's a rock and a redeemer. If you're standing on the rock, you have peace and you have solidarity. If you have a redeemer, then you have salvation. You're rescued. He's purchased your life if you put your trust in him. So in the scriptures, we don't find a judge who condemns us. We find someone who invites us to come and receive him as our rock and our redeemer. So that brings joy to our heart. We realize where we're going, where we've come from, who we are, what kind of God God is. He's a good God. We see the gospel in the scriptures. It brings joy to the heart. Now, look at those descriptions in verse 10. Just unpack these finally. Verse 10, what does it say? It's more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So it's precious and it's delightful. It actually is delight for our affections. It's not just good for the mind, but it's great for our affections. It lifts our affections to a higher place and it's, it's delightful. What could be more precious than this? So how should we view God's word then? It's more precious than gold and it's sweeter. It should be the most desirable and precious thing in our lives. It should be our greatest treasure. It should be the most precious thing in all the world to us. You know, uh, often people go and take Bibles, don't they, to persecuted countries where they don't have them. And you often hear stories of people in persecuted countries receiving a Bible for the first time. And they weep with joy. They weep with joy and hold this Bible with absolute wonder. This amazing book that they, they know they need. And you can see videos of this on, 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 on the internet. And you'll hear people say, this is what I needed the most. This is what we need the most. It's God's word. So what kind of treasure can do this? Just think about this again. Do you want your soul to be revived? Do you want to be wise? Do you want, to, do you want joy? Do you want to live forever? Do you want to be warned? Do you want great treasure? Do you want what's surpassingly sweet? Well, here's where you find it. It's in God's word. It's no secret. It's in God's word. Howard Hendricks, who taught people to study the word, he, says, he said this. He had this written in his Bible. He said, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Only sin and folly can explain us not accessing something so sweet, so precious, so life-changing as God's Word. Why do we not? As much as we could. How's your Bible intake going? How's it going? Are you accessing God's Word? Are you meditating on it? Only sin and folly can explain that we don't as much as we could. And you know, you can see in verse 11, it says, by accessing the Bible, we see that God's servant is warned. And then look what it says further on. Look what it says there in verse 12. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. None of us can understand how sinful we are. We think that we, we've done something wrong by some something we say, but perhaps the root of pride goes way deeper than we could ever imagine. We can't understand the depths of our sins. Sometimes if I've had an argument with my wife and I'm sitting there and praying about it afterwards, I can't even begin to fathom 
where my sin starts and stops sometimes. It's all so messy. I wonder if you're like that. If you've been married any length of time, perhaps you can relate to that. I don't know where my sin starts and stops sometimes. God's word, we need it to reveal the depths of our sin. And sin brings misery. God's word shows us how to be released from sin. So we should be approaching the Bible in glad dependence. You want, do you want your life to be pleasing to God, to bring glory to him? It says in verse 14 there, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Do you want that? Well, God's word is where we find it. So just closing, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures here. And I'll ask you a couple of questions. Here's the questions for you. What patterns do you need to implement in your life that currently don't exist in terms of Bible intake? What patterns do you really need to implement, given that the Bible is such a great life-changing treasure, so sweet and so life-changing? What patterns do you need to put in place? Or if you've got some good rhythms going, that's wonderful. What do you need to do to continue to keep those consistent? What's keeping you? from your Bible intake, if, if it's not enough, maybe a lot of us would say, not enough. If, if so, what's keeping you? What is it that's taking the place of that? Is there something you need to repent of? Do you have a plan for reading the scriptures? Come and ask me if you want a Bible in a year plan. I can email you one. Great plans. Or I've got all kinds of other aids we can give you. So come and ask me if you want a plan for reading the Bible or you want some suggestions. Let's be asking each other in life group, how's your Bible intake going? I think this is one of the best ways because actually you don't ask that question unless you're doing it yourself, do you? But if we're all asking one another, not in a guilt-driven way, but because we want each other to be joyful, how's your Bible intake going? Or what are you learning from the Bible? What are you reading at the moment? Let's be asking those questions all the time. We'll gain lots from each other. Yeah, I'm reading Isaiah. I'm seeing this. I never saw this before. We gain that kind of blessing from each other. So let's be asking. If you're not a Christian here today, and maybe you've been convinced enough that you think maybe the Bible's worth reading, can I suggest to you start maybe in the book of Matthew, New Testament, and read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and read about what the Bible says about Jesus and start there and just see who this Messiah is, who this person is, and what he does and claims to be. Read the Bible. Have a look. We can talk all day about the Bible, but you're going to get to know Jesus if you find him in the Scriptures. So let's, let's think about this. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, and then we'll pray. Joshua 1, verse 8 and 9. God says to Joshua, Keep this book of the law always on your lips, Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It says in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You speak today.
in creation and you speak even more wonderfully and directly and powerfully and personally through your word. We praise you for it. What a treasure it is. Lord, forgive us. We, we, we probably can all say to some degree, we haven't valued this as we should, but thank you. You keep calling us back to your word again that we might have joy, that we might have life, that we might know you. And so we pray that we'd be a church who is loving your word. It says in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. I just pray that we would love your word, Lord, that we would grow in our enjoyment of it. We would handle it more. We'd be shaped by it. And we pray that as we do that, we'd become more and more like you and live lives that are pleasing in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.